So um, what I've often been doing in some of these sermons is, uh, uh, because Ecclesiastes is sort of a strange book, and because it focuses on so many of the negative things in life, you know, I want to respect that. And so what I've often been doing is we just talk about how bad things are, how horrible things are. And uh, we just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and if you're sitting here and you're hearing these things and you might feel like, oh, this feels very futile, this feels very meaningless, then I think you're getting the point, okay? Um, that's the point of Ecclesiastes, is to get you to feel those things. And for some of us, sometimes it's difficult to feel those things because we like to be happy and upbeat and optimistic, but Ecclesiastes is just not that book. And so if you want to read books like that, you can, you know, read other books of the Bible. But Ecclesiastes is like, is like that. So, so if you, so just a caution, you know, you, things, we may explore some things that may feel a little bit hopeless, okay? But I think that's what we got to do, is sometimes before we jump to you know, the Bible passages that make us all feel good and happy and content, we spend some time dwelling in the meaninglessness of it all, all right, the futility of it all, instead of quickly jumping to the solutions. That's what we do today, all right? Today we're talking about justice. There are many ways in which the world is unjust today, and Ecclesiastes explores a few examples, and so one example is the reality of human oppression. Human oppression, let's read, for example, Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 3, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Now, this is a pretty sad view of the world. Um, you know, but it's just recognizing there are many people suffering in our world for a variety of reasons, from famine, from war, from disease, from slavery, from wrongful imprisonment, from abuse, and so on. There's all sorts of suffering, and sometimes it's not because of anything they did at all. It's because there are other human beings who are oppressing them, other human beings who are sinning at such grand levels that they're causing mass suffering. It could be a wealthy slave owner. It could be a corrupt government. It could be a violent gang. It could be abusive family members. All of these are realities in our world. And, um, and as a result, people suffer. Um, you know, when I was thinking about this verse this week, I immediately thought about this one kid I met uh, in China. I was, it was 2010, and I was in China, and this kid came up to me on the, off the street to beg for money. And he had this, he was probably like seven, eight years old, and he had a horribly maimed arm. Uh, it was probably, I, I don't know what it was, maybe a burn or an acid accident or something like that. And he was just asking for money, and someone who was with me at the time, who was a local Chinese citizen, told me, don't give money to that person. And, uh, and so I didn't. And then later I asked why, and they said, oh, when you see a kid with a maimed arm like that, more often than that, not, it means this kid was kidnapped or somehow lured by some gang and, and probably whoever took this kid in did this thing to this kid's arm in order to draw sympathy from people and they receive almost 100% of the proceeds. And so you don't want to feed that system. And I just couldn't believe that that was a reality for this kid. It, 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 I just couldn't imagine what it must be like to be a kid like this and just 
to be hurt in such an egregious way and to be forced to beg and to give the money you make to the people who hurt you. Um, and I wanted to help somehow, but I couldn't. I, I mean, I was just this foreigner and my Chinese wasn't great. And, uh, and that's, but I was, I, that came to mind when I thought about this passage and this idea that power is on the side of the oppressors. Power is on the side of the oppressors. Those who exploit and abuse the vulnerable, unfortunately, they often don't suffer the consequences of their own sin. And instead, it is those who are abused who suffer the consequences of their sin. And sometimes the oppressors, they get away with it, and they even profit off of it um, because they just have so much power. And it's not just that the oppressed are suffering. There's another thing in this verse that I want to highlight, which is this idea that they have no comforter. You know, it's one thing to suffer, and then you're suffering with other people, and you can sort of suffer together in community. You sort of, you go through these hardships together, and you can support one another, comfort one another. But it's another thing to have no comforter. And that's also reality for a lot of these folks. What's worse than suffering is suffering alone. And uh, it's just so sad. There's so many people around the world, in our country, in other countries, they don't go through suffering in community. They go through suffering alone. And it's so bad that the author even writes that it is better to be dead than to be alive. And then he makes this case, which is mind-blowing, that it's what's even better than being both alive and being dead is to not have been born at all. Now, you might read that and you can go, how can you possibly say that? You know, if that's your first thought, then probably you haven't experienced really intense levels of suffering. You know, I, I was born in the stage, and I grew up in a rel relatively privileged household, and, uh, and so I, I don't think I've, you know, I've gone through some hardships, but I don't know if I've ever made the thought, like, it's better for me to never have been born at all. But, you know, if you're a slave, you know, I follow an international justice mission. There's this Christian organization. They do, you know, missions. They do, like, um, they free slaves all around the world, modern-day slavery, right? And so they post all these statuses about, you know, things they do. And, you know, a few years ago, I remember um, reading the story about how they, they arrested this slave owner who had forced over 300 people to be, essentially be slaves and making bricks. And this was the third time he was arrested, you know, and, and he had employed over 1,000 slaves in his career. But he'd be arrested, and he'd post bail, and then he'd be arrested and post bail, and this is the third time. Anyways, there are these, all these stories around the world. I would imagine, you know, if you are a slave and you're working eight hours a day making bricks and you're a kid and you've been, or maybe you're kidnapped and you're being tortured by some gang or some paramilitary organization, like, it probably would be normal for you to wonder, is it, would it have been better for me not to have been born at all? You know, and I think the reason why some of these passages, they don't compute for some of us who live in the first world is we just haven't gone through suffering at this level, unlike many people in history. But I think to those who suffer, to those who go through immense suffering, reading passages like this enables people to go, finally somebody sees me. Finally somebody can express what I feel the need to express. Somebody understands my pain. Somebody understands what I'm going through. Um, and by the way, quick tangent, I wanna say this. Uh, if you are here and you are experiencing thoughts sort of like this, where it's maybe it's better if I was never born at all, and it's better if I was dead, things like that, 
I want to encourage you to get help. Please talk to a friend, talk to a pastor, talk to a professional counselor. Um, do whatever you need to get help, all right? And I want to say this as well. You know, sometimes, uh, so I'm a pastor, and so I took one intro to counseling class in seminary, okay? So that, so that means I'm not an expert, all right? So there are people who are more qualified than me, and so uh, mental health is above my pay grade. Seek out professional counseling if need. All right, back to this passage, all right? So some people, they are opposed, uh, sorry, they are oppressed by oppressors, and that's the reality, right? They can't escape from their situation. They just have to deal with it. And sometimes they're so oppressed, they're tempted to give up and die. That's oppression. That's one category, all right? So we're just, we're going to dig a little deeper, be a little bit more sad before we go up and up again, okay? Another way that injustice incurs is in the unfairness of life, in the unfairness of life. You know, here's the thing. Sometimes you suffer, and it's not that someone is oppressing you. There's like a human being figure who's oppressing you. Sometimes it's just bad luck. You just horrible things happen to you, and it's not because you did anything to deserve it. You can be a victim of a natural disaster. You can be a victim of uh, just an—you can be in a car accident. You can be an innocent civilian just caught up in war, experiencing collateral damage of war. And let's read uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 14. There's something else meaningless that occurs—actually, this should just say 14, not 15. There's something else meaningless that occurs on earth, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. You know, essentially, the author, he's saying, you know, karma doesn't work. You know, the idea of karma is, you know, if you are a good person and you do good things, then good things should happen to you. And if you're a bad thing—sorry, uh, uh, a bad person, you do bad things, then bad things should happen to you. So that's the idea of karma. You know, and there are even biblical passages that say very similar things. Like, for example, Proverbs 10, 27, it says, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. This is sort of a Christian understanding. It's, it's not karma because karma is sort of, you know, the universe sort of, you know, orients itself and balances out itself. But in the Christian understanding, there's a God in charge, and God is making things right and doing things, so that supposedly, if you do good things, you should have a long life. And if you do bad things, your life should be cut short. But we all know there are many scenarios in which that doesn't happen. There are many good people who have lives cut short, and there are many bad people who die in old age. Um, so why is that? Why is that sometimes the righteous get what the wicked deserve, and then the wicked get what the righteous deserve? You see, and I think this is where uh, things get a little bit complicated and just difficult for the Christian. Because if there was no God, okay, think of, just imagine this scenario. If there was no God, then everything is just an accident. Everything is just, you know, um, we're just all molecules moving around. Then injustice is just an illusion. Injustice is just part of life, you know. There's, it's just social psychology. There is no right or wrong. You just Things just happen, you know, if, if, if the circumstances are set up, you know, if the, so that these molecules move this way, then this automatically happens. You know, and oftentimes, so when you zoom out a little bit, when you think about how nature works, how biology works, you have the survival of the fittest. The strong will survive and the weak don't, and that's just the way life works. It's not right or wrong. Justice is not a thing. Death and decay are ordinary means of life. But if there is a God, and if God loves human beings, 
then what this means is that injustice is not, in, sorry, justice or injustice, they're not illusions, they are realities. Because there should be an objective universal standard for justice. There is a right or wrong, and so we can say, oh, when this person did this, this is right, when this person did this, this is wrong, and we can make stuff, we can make statements like, oh, this person deserves this, when this person deserves that, we can make those cases because we believe in a God. But however, suffering exists, and there is injustice, so it forces us to ask, why then does suffering exist? Why then does injustice exist? You know, and uh, I think it's important to, you know, we live in an age right now where there's a lot of war going on in our world, and um, the reality is injustice often happens the most in times of war. And so we see examples all around us all the time now. You know, there's so many conflicts in the world, but, you know, one that I've personally been grieving is what's going on in the Israel-Hamas war. And uh, there's so many stories um, of people who did nothing wrong who have died. And, um, you know, I want to highlight two stories in particular that have moved me. You know, the first is the story of Vivian Silver. Vivian Silver, she was a peace activist and uh, a women's right activist. She was a Jewish woman born and raised in Canada. And as a young adult, she moved to Israel. And for decades, she actually was a very staunch proponent of Palestinian rights. She worked at the border to make sure that Gazans had job training opportunities and they were paid fair wages. She co-founded this organization called the Arab Jewish Center for Equality, Empowerment, and Cooperation, which basically they brought both Arabs and Jews together to do these peace projects. She volunteered with an organization to regularly give rides to Gazan patients to go to Jerusalem hospitals when they needed medical treatment. And then even last year, on October 4th, she was 74 years old. She organized a peace rally in Jerusalem. And this was attended by 1,500 people. She was a, a person of peace. And sadly, three days later, on October 7th, she was killed by Hamas. And the second story I want to highlight is the story of Dr. Hamam Allo. So Allo was born and raised in Gaza. He was Palestinian. He went to school in Yemen to become a doctor, and then he did his residency in Jordan. He spent 14 years abroad, you know, becoming a doctor, doing his residency and all that. And then he became pretty successful, and he actually had multiple job opportunities, uh, but he turned them, at, at, you know, in more advanced countries, but he turned them all down and decided he wanted to return home. So in 2021, he moved to Gaza, where he became the only kidney specialist doctor in all of Gaza. And when the current war started, he was serving at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. And a few weeks into the war, he was interviewed by an American journalist. And you can listen to the audio recording online. But he was asked, why don't you evacuate? You know, there's war going on in Gaza City. Why don't you evacuate? And this is what he said. And if I go, who treats our patients? We are not animals. We have the right to receive proper health care. You think I went to medical school? And my postgraduate degree for a total of 14 years, so I think only about my life and not my patients. Do you think this is the reason I went to medical school, to think only about my life? That's what he said. And then 13 days after that interview, he visited his wife's house, where he and three other family members were killed in an airstrike. And so we have so many examples of this, of the righteous getting what the wicked deserve. And it's not just now. I mean, there's so many people throughout history, Abraham Lincoln, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jim Elliott, Martin Luther King Jr., all these people, they sought to do good, and as a result, they were killed. And it may feel meaningless. When you think about examples like that, it may feel meaningless to do just like, why do good at all if it seems like you're just going to die? You know, for those of us who are passionate about causes of justice, it may make us pause. You know, is the cause of justice even possible? Is doing good worthwhile? Can, you know, when you think about all these big questions of life, can global poverty be eliminated? Can war actually cease? Can racism end? Or are all these all just pipe dreams? Are we just working against a system that will never fall? When we see examples on the daily of righteous dying and the wicked living long and staying in power, then it may compel us to ask, why, God? Why, God? Why are you allowing such oppression, such injustice, and why don't you do anything about it? Or in the words of Psalm 10, verse 1, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So what is our response? What should we do, given the scenario that oftentimes the righteous die, they get what the wicked deserve, oftentimes no one hears those who are oppressed, they have no comfort, what should we do? You know, there's some controversial advice. Before we get to what should we do, I think this, I want to explore this because this makes things a little more complicated. There's some controversial advice given in Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 18. Now read it out. It goes, In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. So verse 15 echoes a lot of what we said already. The righteous often die young. But then, and then verse 16 through 18, it seems like it's a response to verse 15, but it offers advice that we, at first glance, it doesn't seem biblical. Okay? And, and a lot of people debate over what this means, and so... I actually, I'm not sure if my interpretation is correct, uh, but, you know, but we'll get there in a, little, in a little bit. A lot of people debate what this means because the literal reading doesn't seem biblical. The literal re reading basically says, you know, don't be too good and don't be too bad because if you be too good, you know, it's, you, you'll, be, you'll destroy yourself. If you be too bad, you'll destroy yourself. But so some, be somewhere in the middle. Be a little bit good and be a little bit bad. And that way you'll preserve your life. But is that the proper way to interpret this? Because is this basically saying, you know, people like Vivian Silver, she shouldn't have been a peacemaker. She shouldn't have gone to Israel and done all these volunteer work. She should have just, you know, hung out and went back to Canada. Or like this, this doctor, Al Aloe. You know, is, this guy shouldn't have stayed in Gaza. He should have evacuated. Is that what it's saying? Is, are, are we saying all these heroes of history that we've come to idealize, we're doing all these wonderful things, that, who gave their lives for a great cause, you know, they should have been less good. I don't think so. Because, you know, there are so many passages where Jesus, you know, Jesus says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, God says, be holy as I am holy. There's all these passages that call us to goodness. Goodness is the ideal. Moderation in morality shouldn't be the ideal. And, and so some people would look at this passage and they go, maybe what this passage is trying to say is, uh, the author is trying to say, don't be self-righteous 
or don't be reliant on your own self or wisdom or things like that. Or maybe they're saying, do not be so conceited in how righteous you are that you look down on other people. And so there's some, you know, there's different interpretations. And if that's your interpretation, that I think those are valid. But I think personally, I feel like all those interpretations are changing the plain meaning of the text. And so uh, I think, um, you know, one thing that I often do when I'm trying to figure out how to interpret the passage, I look around the whole chapter. Are there other verses that can sort of highlight what this is getting at? And so I think there are. There are similar verses. If you scroll down a few more verses, Ecclesiastes 7:20, we read this. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. All right, so the author is saying it's essentially impossible to achieve 100% righteousness. All right, so keep that in mind. And then we keep reading Ecclesiastes 7, 23 to 24. This is what it says. All this I tested by wisdom and said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? And so here the author is saying it's impossible to achieve 100% wisdom. It's an unattainable goal. And so I think what, how we should read this chapter is that we should read it in sync with a lot of these passages in Ecclesiastes, which, which basically make the case that there are many pursuits on earth that are futile. On this earth that is fallen and broken, there are a lot of things that we want to do that are ideal to try to do, but it is futile to do these things. It is meaningless to do these things. We'll never be able to obtain them. The goal of becoming wealthy, you can't obtain it. The goal of having a successful career will never obtain it. The goal of knowing all things, of being wise beyond knowledge, will never obtain it. The goal of being a perfect person will never obtain it. The goal of achieving perfect justice will never obtain it. Why? Because we are limited creatures in a fallen world. And I think this is where we need to read Ecclesiastes in the context of the full Bible. You know, I mentioned this in previous sermons in this Ecclesiastes series, but I don't believe Ecclesiastes embodies the full gospel. I think it's intentionally set up so that you read it and you go, ah, that's, that's not satisfactory. That's not the full answer. I, there has to be more than this. I think that's how you're supposed to read it. And so what Ecclesiastes does is it tells us life is so frustrating this is what this is life and you just have to deal with it and you can't get what you want and 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 but here's some practical guidelines to help you navigate here and there but it's not ultimate it leaves you feeling short and empty-handed and wishing for an ultimate solution and i think that ecclesiastes functionally is saying if there is if this is all there is if there is no other solution then the best we can do is we just have to be moderate in, in, our, in our, even our morality. We just have to say, you know what, I don't, I don't want to risk my life for this. I just want to be content with where I'm at. Because our circumstances are meaningless anyways. But, thank God, Ecclesiastes isn't the only book in the Bible. There are 65 other books in the Bible. And the whole message of Scripture teaches us that there is something, there is an ultimate solution. And the ultimate solution is Jesus. Because Jesus came, everything changes. Because Jesus came, everything changes. And Jesus didn't just come, but he overturned the fundamental ways in which the world works. So that the patterns of, of Ecclesiastes, they don't have to be 
the ultimate eternal patterns forever. Now think about this. You know, in our world, you know, a big problem is that there are many people who are oppressed and they have no comforter. So how would God address this issue? Well, you might think, well, maybe uh, in line with uh, a lot of religious leaders of Jesus' day, maybe God will send like a warrior king figure to lead a revolution and overthrow this oppressive Roman Empire, free, free the, the people from oppression and from uh, the empire, kind of like a William Wallace figure, right? But instead, what did God do? He sent Jesus. Jesus was a man of peace. He taught people to turn the other cheek. And at the end of Jesus' life, he became a victim of oppression himself. Jesus was put to death by people in power. He was falsely arrested, falsely accused, convicted in this sham trial. He was this political pawn, you know, thrown around between Herod and Pilate, and then he was tortured and killed. He went through the same experience as so many people today who are poor and oppressed go through. But not only, not only was he oppressed by human beings, but even on the cross, God the Father abandoned him there. You know, remember how we talked about how the righteous get what the wicked deserve? You know, well, there was no one in history more righteous than Jesus, and he got what the wicked deserved. The crucifixion in the first, in the, in the first century in, Rome, in the Roman Empire was reserved for the worst of criminals, and that was the punishment allotted to Jesus. You know, Jesus was like Vivian Silver and Haman Alo. He relocated himself from a place of safety to a place of danger, and even when the circumstances were dire, he stayed, he remained, and it cost him his life. And why did he do that? Well, there's many reasons, first and foremost. This was the method by which God would save us from our sins. But I think there's other dimensions as well. Another is, I think, this is God's way of saying, I am with you in the suffering. I am with you in the injustice. Earlier we read, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? The cross is the refutation of that question. The cross is a statement from God saying, I am not standing far off. I am right there with you. I am not hiding myself in the times of trouble. I am right there with you. Earlier we read this passage in Ecclesiastes, you know, I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Well, the cross is also a response to that. The cross is saying, God is our comforter. God is with those who are oppressed because God experienced it firsthand. You know, if that were the end of the story, that would be pretty good already, but it's going to get even better because Jesus rose from the dead. You see, one of the frustrations with life is that it seems like only the good die young, right? The righteous receive the punishment of the wicked. The, the wicked live long lives. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it shows it was a proof that what happens in this life isn't the final say, that there is something else yet to come that will be better than this life. And what really matters is not, you know, who dies or who lives in this life, but what happens in the next life. And it is in that life that all things will be made right. And it is in that life that our rules and limitations in our current world won't apply because that is a new creation. Check out Paul's words. This is Romans 8, 18 through 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So did you catch this? Our creation was subjected to frustration. This world was frustrating to work, frustrating to make money, frustrating to be wise, frustrating to find happiness, frustrating to make peace, to advocate for justice, to do good. This world will one day be liberated from that frustration, liberated from the bondage to decay. Right now, frustration and decay are the norm. They rule, but it's only temporary. Someday all of creation will be transformed. And how? I'm going to read another passage from the New Testament. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Uh, but, God has in, sorry, but, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So I'm going to pause here. This, I love this imagery of first fruits. What this is talking about is in the ancient agricultural world, when you have a harvest, you, you sometimes you gather the first of your vegetables, your, your first crops, and then you look at it, and this is the evidence, or sort of this shows you what kind of harvest you're going to get the rest of the season. And so if you have a good first fruits, your crops are good, then it's a sign that the rest of your crops are going to be good. Okay, and Paul here is saying Jesus is like the first fruits of the dead. He is the first one to rise from the dead. And he is the proof that one day when we all rise from the dead, it's going to be pretty amazing. It's going to be pretty glorious. And well, let's keep reading. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 23, okay? But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So this passage is saying that Jesus, right now, because he's already written, so we're in this in-between stage. He already rose from the dead, but he hasn't returned yet. So during this in-between stage, what is going on? He is in the process of putting everything under his feet. He is in the process of liberating the world from his bondage. He is, he is in the process of putting all these dominions and authorities of pa and power under his control. All oppression, all injustice, all evil gradually are being put under his feet. And then after he vanquishes the last enemy, which is death, then he will come back and then the end will come. And then he will hand this kingdom over to God the Father. That's the process. In the, in the, world, in, in the words of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. In other words, it's going to take a long time. Sometimes you're going to have bumps along the road. Sometimes you're going to see you know, right, the righteous making some victories, and then sometimes you're going to see the wicked make some victories. So it's a very long process, but, the, but it bends toward justice. We're headed towards justice. And the way we know that is because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no guarantee that our history is headed towards justice. The good guys can win one generation, and then the bad guys will win the next generation. It will be the same old, same old. In the words of uh, Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. That is what will happen if there is no resurrection. But when Jesus rose from the dead, something new under the sun happened. A guy died, and then he rose from the grave. And that was the first fruits of a new kind of harvest, a harvest of righteousness, of peace, of justice. And you have an opportunity, if you are a Christian, to join in 
on this new harvest, to be a part of this new trajectory of creation. If you follow Jesus and you join this thing called the church, if you become a citizen of this, king, of, of this thing called the, the kingdom of God, you will be initiated into this mission, expanding Jesus' reign on earth, so that all that is currently frustrating and currently horrible and currently dying will become renewed. Freedom from oppression will be possible. Justice will be possible. Righteousness will be possible. It may not happen on our time scale. It may not happen the way we want it to, but we are headed towards justice and righteousness and peace. So don't lose hope. Keep praying for the oppressed. Keep serving the poor. Keep advocating for justice. Keep doing good, even at great cost to yourself. For one day we will gather a harvest for our labors that will be unlike any other. One day all will be made right. Let's pray together, and the worship team will come up and close us out. Father, we thank you so much for this good news of the gospel that has given us the assurance, the promise, the guarantee that all will be made right. You know, uh, the Psalms say, unless the builders build a house, uh, sorry, unless God builds a house, the laborers uh, build in vain. And God, that is the status quo without the gospel. If there was no Jesus, if there was no death, no resurrection, then it's just builders building this house in vain. We spend all this effort building this house just to have the wind knock it down. Just like this kid building sand castles on the seashore. But God, we understand that because of the gospel, we're not building in vain. We're not laboring in vain. We have the guarantee that our efforts will carry over into the eternal kingdom. And so we pray, God, for those moments when things feel futile and meaningless, and we wonder, where are you, God? Why does it seem like you're hiding? Why are you standing far off? And are my efforts even worth anything at all? Am I making any difference at all? May you remind us that you are at work and you are making a difference. And even though the moral arc of the universe is long, it bends towards justice. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.